Hello, and welcome to Towards a Smarter World. This is your host, Cruz Saunders, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Rahel Bailey. Uh, Rahel is a senior consultant in operations and content ecosystems and has contributed as an author to many books in the industry, including Content Strategy, Connecting the Dots Between Business, Brand, and Benefits. She publishes, writes, teaches, and helps to move the conversation across the industry forward. She's got major experience in digital transformation. She helps organizations to leverage content as an asset, and she has a strong record of delivering end-to-end content systems that make content happen at scale. She's got experience with content operations and defining those for global content management. She also teaches in the world's only content strategy master's program in Graz, Austria. That is a huge background for somebody that has been influencing our industry for a long time, and we are so privileged to have her on the show today. Thanks for joining us, Rahel. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And uh, I don't recognize the person you just introduced. I'm kind of looking over my shoulder saying, who? But I guess I have been around for quite a while. So um, you kind of accumulate accomplishments, I guess. Well, and and you've been involved in these trades, uh, all the different kinds of content trades for for so long. And you've got a lot of perspective on the evolution of the role in content of content for organizations. Uh, You really helped inspire a lot of content change leaders who are making innovation happen in their organizations. And there's a lot of different labels for the content trades and and the various practices and disciplines from content strategy to content engineering to now it's very popular to talk about content design and build whole departments around that concept. Why have you started focusing on content operations in particular out of those various practices, which you have experience really in all of them? This is an interesting kind of route that I took. And I don't think it's that atypical though of, of content people. So I was always focusing on efficiency. And back in the late 1990s, 1998, 99, 2000, I worked for a company where I was the only writer in the Vancouver office and everyone else was in Los Angeles. And I spent every Friday morning filing, paper filing, and then sending things by FedEx to Los Angeles. We had a a boss who had been the Peter principal, was really uh, in a position that exceeded her abilities. So, you know, what happens then is people start to focus in and micromanage rather than focusing out and forward. And so um, she was like very happy with this hamster wheel of activity of her department. And I'm thinking there must be a better way. And we were about to open one of the first offices in Bangalore. And I thought, you know, sending stuff by FedEx to Los Angeles every Friday is one thing, but starting to send stuff around the world, it's crazy. We should be really using, we're in technology, let's leverage what we've got. And I went to my internal client who was um, the head of professional services. And I said, look, you know, we gather all these statistics, we keep them because of ISO, and then we uh, send them around. And he's going, you gather these statistics? I do this manually every week. I list things in order and I start counting them in, in the folder. And I'm thinking, but we have all of this. So we kind of collaborated together and we ended up building what he said was a content management system, you know, it, a very small one, but he said, oh, really what you want is a CMS. And then I went off on medical leave and came back and he'd built it. He was so excited to show it to me. Look what we've got. 
And then I promptly got made redundant because it was very threatening to my boss that we were automating all these things. And I went out on my own and started talking about the things. So I've been talking about content operations for almost 20 years. But 20 years ago, when you said content operations or operationalizing your content or systematizing your content, it kind of went in one ear and what went out the other. People didn't really relate to that phrase itself. They kind of went, mm, okay, but they didn't really know what you meant. Then when DevOps came along and that became so you know, ubiquitous in, in our, that term became ubiquitous in the technology area. Then when you start saying things like content ops, they go, oh, that's like DevOps, but only for content instead of code. You go, oh yeah. All right. Now we, now we get it. We don't know how to do it. We don't even know if it's important, but we know what you mean. And that's like a huge leap. And um, who started me on this uh, kind of forensic trail for the first time I used the word content operations in a slide deck was Dean Barker, because he was saying, I just discovered something from, it's probably 15 years ago now, because this was a year or two ago that um, he tweeted something about it and said, that's the first time I used the word content operations. And so I thought, I'm going to go look back to see when I did that. And I've been talking about it for almost 20 years. So it's been a long journey and it's been a bit of a bumpy ride, but that's always where I focus my attention. Now, before we had a discipline that focused on content operations, content strategy was the closest thing to it. And really right now, when I say that you have to have a strategy that you implement and what you get out of that strategy is your operational model. So why do you do a strategy? Because you want to operationalize something. You want to have a system. And whether that's as simple as, oh, we have social media and we need to figure out how to schedule and automate the tweets across uh, you know, several platforms or whatever it may be. That's a very simple example, but that's operationalizing your social media. We schedule things. We get them to these triggers that that trigger publication. We don't sit there and make ourselves reminders and like log in every five minutes to Twitter and log into the blogging platform and log into wherever it may be that we need to engage with our audience. We have a way of operationalizing it. So let's operationalize our main function, which is, you know, producing content. And that's kind of, you know, this convoluted way of doing it, because if you're going to operationalize it, you have to have a plan. Well, what is a content strategy unless it's a plan? I don't think of myself as a content strategist much anymore. I think of myself as more a facilitator of some sort of transformation that's going to operationalize your content production. Interesting. Yeah, it's like running a company. There's always a, a strategy employed, but then once the strategy makes it to implementation, there's got to be engineering and there's got to be operation. And it's got to function. It's got to work day to day. I think content strategy is like designing the house. And then content engineering is like implementing, constructing the house, building the house. And then operations is like living in the house. So why do you design a house? So that it's, it's comfortable to live in. It's the same thing. And so, you know, what you do, what I do, it's all around operationalizing in some way. Yeah, and it's interesting. There are so many different um, investments in an enterprise for other forms of operations management and supply chain thinking. You know, where where there's a, 
an investment made in the way something gets produced that's core to the business's value and top line revenue and bottom line revenue. Like there's a process. Interestingly, content's been left behind. Why? Why is that? Why does content often get the short end of the stick, even though it is, as you were saying, one of the most important things to an enterprise? It is, but everyone thinks that they know how to do content and that's to do, uh, you know, to use Microsoft Word or Google Docs or whatever. And I say that's for casual business use. That's not meant for content production and content as a product where you have to have a production system for it is a relatively new thing. You get people who are making the decisions and they don't understand they've never worked in content. They haven't suffered the pain and the content people that have to work with their systems are always like really kind of, you know, gung-ho, go get them. And they'll, they'll suffer with this because they don't realize what they're missing. They've always used word. So the situation perpetuates itself. And it's really quite frustrating to see content people working ridiculous hours all weekend to get something done for Monday because of a lack of tools. I mean, it's like, or a lack of process. And most, usually it's tools and process, but they're put into these situations and then they're kind of abandoned and people don't realize that they're being abandoned. And even the content people themselves don't realize they're being abandoned. You know, I have this saying about, uh, if you ask people how to get across an ocean and they don't know that airplanes exist, they will always describe a boat. And you kind of go, but there's this thing called air travel. They look at you very suspiciously and they stop. And then they describe a different kind of boat. (laughs) They'll just keep describing boats till the cows come home, unless you can actually show them an airplane and how it works. Yeah, no, it, it is a paradigm shift of that nature. It's a paradigm shift from moving content in one whole encapsulated system that involves chunks of content tightly coupled to design to moving pieces and parts through a multi-stage life cycle in a way that the tools will support. And we're dealing with old tools and we're dealing with some new tools and we're trying to stitch those together into the future of modular content production. And that can be challenging. Is that one of the reasons that state of tools that the enterprise you feel has been having a hard time taking kind of an integrated approach to content because of this sort of old versus new approach to tech and and the split nature of things? Or what are the sources of of the hesitancy? What a company values they will invest in. So they invest in accounting software. Why? Because they value money. They will invest in content operations tools for marketing. Why? Because they value marketing. When it comes to the rest of it, they aren't the cool kids. We don't care. Yeah, content is king. Marketing content is king. The other stuff we don't care about. We don't understand it. We don't see the value of it. We wish it would go away. I had one situation where the big pain point was that it was a B2B company and they couldn't understand the APIs and customers were complaining about API integration. How many tech writers did they have? Zero. How much did they invest in their APIs? Zero. And that's because... They just didn't know, didn't care. So if they don't value it, they're not going to invest in it. So when you say we need to really invest in this, we need the right kind of writer. They don't get that. Our engineers can do it. And it's like, well, but they're not writers. They don't know how, you know, communication theory works or learning theory. And they don't, if they could do it, they would have done it already. So why don't you have that kind of writer? 
well, you know, we don't want to. I'd rather hire a developer, an extra developer. And I see this over and over and over again. You need a content person. No, no, no. We're going to we're going to have a, a UX person, or we're going to have a developer, or we're going to have a data scientist. And then when COVID hit, all of a sudden the devs now have to work 80 hour weeks for weeks on end to do what they didn't want to do before, and which you know the content people would have helped them remediate. So you've still got people doing hard coding content into the code. You've got people putting stuff in Excel spreadsheets, building little wonky interfaces, Excel all over the place. And we've had people have to look for compliance statements, and it took them two weeks to find all 30 of them or whatever it was, two weeks. And you'd say, okay, well, you know, in those two weeks, you just spent a lot of time on doing this and we could have had them in one central place. So the writer is looking at it and going, and this is part of it is they don't understand how writers work. So a writer is looking at one compliance statement and they think, I better just check all those other compliance statements. Well, if they're all in one place, you can just look at them and update whatever you need to update, hit send, it goes to the reviewer. The reviewer says, yep, looks good, hits approved and it comes back and you push it out. Instead, got people running around looking for them for for two weeks. Yeah, it just reminds me of client case we had where the uh, high volume publisher, millions of eye content items and thousands being produced at a time, they actually had their writers say that they spent 50% of their time on content transformation and they were estimating another 20 to 30% of their time on content finding just finding stuff. So they were only spending 20%, like one day a week of their time actually authoring and the rest of the time basically dealing with the overhead of content and it's invisible. So every time they would just max out a writer, they just have to hire another one. But maxing out a writer was artificial because that writer didn't have the ability to either find the pieces that they need within the content Mm -hmm. or be able to automatically transform it. So they're moving it from system to system, place to place without having a chance to either delegate that or automate it. So that's the whole sort of, it's like invisible, but that that really missing piece for content operations is just so critical. You mentioned another thing too, which is the implications on policy and governance. And especially in regulated environments, it's just without a content, content operations function, so much is left up to chance. Can you speak to the the role of content ops for policy and governance in particular? Oh my goodness, yes. So I'd be curious as to how many of your clients have come to you because they've run out of spreadsheet management capacity. I've had at least two clients, possibly a third. That was the impetus for content operations. And you kind of go, really? And I kind of blame regulators too, because the regulators come in and they look at code governance and they look at data governance and they never really dig into the content governance. I mean, if I were working for one of these agencies, oh boy, <laughs> they should be flying because I know where all the bodies are buried, right? And to be like, show me who made that change and when, and, and just sit back and watch the scrambling because it's always scrambling. And they know that it's scrambling and they're just counting on the fact that you know, the person who comes in to do the, the audit isn't going to ask those questions. Well, yeah. And, you know, that, that whole dynamic with the regulators is one of the reasons we really believe in the idea of the core content model, having a you know shared set of metadata elements for things like policy, regulation, accessibility, privacy, anything where the content, we need to relate guidance 
for the content with the content sets, you know, it's like bake it into the content because otherwise all of that stuff is just a scramble. Like each department trying to figure out what can be done with the content we have and where it lives in what systems. And, and a lot of times they're having to go get a copy of the content, pull it over and then perform some operation on it, which just splits up the content more and more and more. And it's very, very hard without an orchestrating function for those things to then get back together and into the CMS in a coherent way for ultimately for delivery. And so it's, there's all this risk running around. And so it seems obvious to me, and this is why I'm curious if you could dive into kind of tips we might be able to offer folks who also see the craziness like we do, like they see it, they know it's there, they're living it, but they're dealing with just the status quo. How can people help drive the conversation forward and make tomorrow better than today on all of this stuff? It's a hard one because content people, by definition, have to be good writers. Whereas if somebody is a, a developer or a data scientist, they may not write. So it's not like you could say, come and work with us for a month and, you know, become a writer because the, their writing skills may not be up to that. But unless they actually experience the pain and see the pain. So when they have pain, they write some code and they fix it. They automate it, but they aren't embedded deeply enough with content people to understand the pain well. They don't understand the way they work. They don't understand. So you really need somebody who actually lives it or that you can hand over a very good set of requirements and explanation and then have them run with it. And when you say we want, uh, we want to use these efficiencies that were developed 20 years ago, you get people turning up their nose and they go, oh, XML, that's old, that's boring. That's like my, my father's code. Um, don't, can't we do it with, and then they'll name something, you know, <laughs> Jason comes up a lot. Can't we do it with Jason? And it's like, no, not, it's just not robust enough. It's not meant for that. You know, you really want this. And it's, yeah, but it's web. It's like, but this is operations. It has nothing to do with web. We will transform it. You want an HTML5? We can output it to HTML5. We can do it really efficiently, but you need to have that power at the, the back end. And so I think that, you know, content is just in this, in a Venn diagram, it's in that middle part where all these other disciplines that use content have their own things that they're efficient about. And then content is spread over all of them. And so nobody wants to own it. Nobody wants to improve it. Nobody wants to really deal with it. And so it just kind of sits. And unless you have somebody at the table, like a, you know, a chief content officer who sits at the right tables and can say, whoa, never mind another developer, each team needs one content person, end of story. And then they'll go away and begrudgingly do it. And then they'll afterwards, they kind of go like, how did we ever live without a content person? But un unless you make them do it, they won't do it. You know, it's like brushing your teeth. They'd rather have a toothache all the time than actually brush their teeth. How do we arrive at the place we're at today? What has been the sort of landscape of the enterprise conversation that's given us this sort of mess that we're in today. So, you know, when, when IBM kind of developed um, the DITA standard and it was based on 
learning theory and particularly adult kind of, not adult education, but that idea of just-in-time information. Nobody RTFMs. We don't sit down and open the manual and read it. But when you want that one piece of information, you want it to be there because you need to fix something, right? I need to change the, the cartridge in my printer or whatever it may be. And so they based it around the knowledge of how people learn and how people comprehend and how they retrieve information. And then they had it built by people who understood and they worked together with them. That doesn't really happen in most of the real world. And we do have these two parallel tracks. So Techcom was doing what today we would call UX rating. So they were doing it for desktop systems. And, you know, the standard came about that was meant for software. And they had ways of isolating labels and all those content variants that can change that are volatile. And they had a way of reusing content and, and transcluding content and so on and so forth. And then this other stream kind of came along and it's everything web. And they weren't hiring writers because they saw that as luxury. So the engineers were doing it themselves. And then you got all these like really terrible error messages and terrible interfaces. And then they got UX people in there. And then the UX people started doing it. And then they realized that they weren't particularly great writers. And then now we have something called UX writers. So they're doing the same thing that tech writers did, except tech writers had all of the systems to do it really efficiently. And they're using spreadsheets. So it's almost like you take that timeline, make a copy, and then push it back 15 years. And that's where UX writing is at. So it's not like we have a linear progression. We It's splintered. Okay, so we're dealing with a mess. And there's a lot of people who recognize it, like we do. They see the mess, and they need to be able to advocate for a better tomorrow. What advice, what tips do you have for folks who are in the trenches seeing the problem and wanting to make it better? So I think that you can do a few things that will give you some quick wins. So as much as I hate to say it, if you're not using a spreadsheet, start tracking things with the spreadsheet. That's like step one, because at least you know where everything is. So it's the kind of semi-automatic as opposed to automated. Another piece is to work with the people who are designing your user experience, because if they are, particularly if they are tasked with personalization of some sort, then you're going to need to figure out how to deliver the content for that personalization. So once there's that aha moment that the content needs to get broken down and now we have people copying and pasting into the CMS, then what's the next step? They would go like, mm, how do we automate this more? I think it's also uh, for content people, it's important to educate yourself. So how many content people have actually sat down and looked around at vendors or gone to a meetup and tried to learn about this stuff? You know, this is kind of the, if this is, if you think that this is the boring stuff, find a way to get interested in it for a while. You don't have to do it forever, but you get interested in it for a while because there are things out there. You might say, okay, we're not ready to go to, you know, full-fledged this system X, but maybe system Y, you know, where it's a light touch it doesn't give you all the bells and whistles, but at least all the content is in one repository and it has API capability. Great. Like it's the first step towards operationalizing, but to adopt it, you have to know it's there. So go find out about these things and then whatever you can do. So 
governance is a big part of this. So when you say the word governance, either everyone's keen to jump in and say, this is mine, or they say, oh, that's above my pay grade. I don't want to know about it. So um, I took a little tip from Lisa Welshman and you call it, you know, web operations. So if I was to code something and you were working on this um, piece of content and then you were to hit submit, who's responsible for it? And they'll go, oh, my director. Okay. So when you hit submit, it goes to the director. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't bother him with that. So, you know, you kind of get to the point of backing your way into a governance model through the example of having to code something into a workflow. Because people understand that machines need something concrete and absolute. So when you use that as an example, now you get this, oh, the, the director is ultimately responsible, but they delegate the responsibility for workaday things to their managers, and it only escalates when it's contentious. So, okay, so we have workflow A, workflow B, you know, variant A, variant B. And uh, thank you very much. We don't have the system yet, but we're going to use this now to route things. So then you get away from that. Um, five people have it and nobody will sign it off because everyone's waiting for someone else. So, you know, use whatever kind of metaphors are available to you. Just put a little bit more structure into your your work and then you know you can talk to people like in marketing operations in the content operations for marketing they have big systems and it works on the rhythm for campaigns so it's to manage campaigns and agencies and so on and so forth but they'll have a workflow module hmm, maybe we can use the workflow module we can't use any of the rest of it because our cadence is very different but maybe we could use the workflow module and that's like step one so you know you you can kind of increment as you go and, it, you know, if you don't know, go talk to someone who does know, call someone, you know, it gets, gets, go to a meetup, get some advice. There are lots of uh, resources out there and, and they're starting to be more and more about content operations and, you know, just call up somebody and have a chat with them. They can steer you in the right direction, if nothing else. Well, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, as we've been putting together the content operations practice with Kit here, it's been a interesting process of needing to come up with frameworks for, for example, orchestration models, like just how can we document content operations in a way that can be a living and ongoing and actionable form for day-to-day -day functioning. And so it's interesting because a lot of the content operations best practices out there today are so isolated. There's only a few vendors talking about content operations, and there's no, I think, single group helping to kind of build a conversation around content operations. So there's a lot of innovation happening, but it's happening inside companies, inside consulting firms, inside private conversations between folks. Um, yeah. Like a dirty little secret, if you will. It's not, it's not a dirty little secret. It's just a little secret is that um, I spoke to a technologist, a very respected technologist, very smart guy. We started talking about content operations. And this was before the term was even popularized. And he said, we have a client, a very big client right now, and I can't tell you who it is. And we built a content operations model for them. And they felt it was such a competitive advantage that they made us all sign NDAs. We can't talk about it outside. We can't say what's in it. They put the documents in a, uh, like in a SharePoint and they locked down access to it because they don't want anyone stealing it. So that's how much 
value they saw to this operational model, but it's locked inside the company. No one will ever know about it because they don't want their competitors getting their hands on it. Yeah. And so when you think about it, you say, well, hold on. Okay, that's internal. And it's that much value. Maybe we should look at our own operations, right? And so it's it's very interesting. And it's also, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch the light bulb go on. If you can get that light bulb to go on, it's really interesting how fast people can actually move, but you have to get them to understand what the problem is. And a lot of the operational like the gigs that I've gotten where it's clearly about content operations is in response to, you know, that burning platform thing. We, the regulators gave us one year to prove law and we can't find the documents and they've got these blue mountain boxes stacked up behind them. And it's like, we know we have to do this digitally help us. So the light bulb went on because they're going to get sued and they're going to have to pay a million dollar fine. Yeah. Well, and regulation is one of those things that just drives a lot of interest in operations because all of a sudden it's like all the our ability to even manage the content in a way that will allow us to respond to regulatory incidents entirely depends on an operational function that doesn't exist. Oh, so there's that. But there's also this idea that really that your friend was discovering, which is that organizations that figure out content operations is valuable want to protect it as a competitive advantage because what they're what they're determining is we have a way of taking our intellectual capital as a business and leverage it for repeatable business value in a way that our competitors can't. And therefore, exactly. we're able to respond more nimbly produce more downstream effects, increase our capabilities, manage a massive set of content with more nimbleness and cost-effective deployment, and get a better return on our invested capital inside of our uh, content systems, our tech, right? We're getting a return on IT assets that's better. So it's like this massive boost to to the organizational's competitiveness as a function of an operational like backwater today. And it just, to me, it just seems like that's going to shift. The whole nature of the dialogue around operations, whether it's through regulatory, privacy kinds of issues that where content suddenly is a part of the front page headlines, right? Or it's uh, where, where content, it, somebody at the C-level discovers the value. I think that that sort of budget shift will happen with that. And I'm wondering if you see anything that organizations that are content producing can do to help facilitate that shift or make it happen in a way that results in the riches that really should be coming into content teams, right? Because it's incredible to see what those dollars get back for an organization when they're deployed. And yet it's still arcane. One of the gems that James Matthewson told me once and we were at a conference and I was talking about implementing blah 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 and he said look so it costs you three million to implement you save three million nobody's going to be interested you lose a sale because the content's not right or the content's not there then they'll sit up and take notice. And those words stayed with me to, to this day because they're really kind of five business drivers and everything else is a subset of those. But one of the business drivers is uh, operational efficiency. And that's the least important. They don't care 
if workers are suffering, let's just put it that way, they don't care as long as the content gets to where it needs to be at the time it needs to be. They only care that they're suffering when they say, why aren't you getting out there faster? Or why aren't you getting it out there more accurately or whatever the, the external business drivers are? And then they look at that and they go like, okay, well, I guess we'll have to fix that. So you know, out of the five business drivers, so one is time to market. I've been told, oh, we, um, we only make money for the first six months and then you know the knockoffs come along. And so the faster we can get to market, the more profitable we'll be. There's expanding your territory. One time the content operations was, oh, we're going to go to a, a trade show in, in Europe. It'll be our first one. We're going to sell in all these languages. And it's like, oh, yeah, but you're going to have to produce content in all those languages. And we had, had asked for $30,000 to implement something. And they had said no. And then we, <laughs> they said, well, we're going to lose like $2 million worth of business because we didn't, we can't deliver this content. And we said, okay, give us $60,000 and we'll deliver something. And they went, sure, only sixty. So, you know, when it was only fixing the back end, $30,000 was too much. When it was losing $2 million in sales, all of a sudden, sixty seemed like a bargain, right? So there's time to market. There's the um, expanding expanding your reach, and that could be expanding in different languages or more kinds of content, et cetera. One is risk management. So how many times do you want it to incur a fine for having the wrong content or not updating fast enough or whatever the case may be? And the, the fourth is around brand and UX and loyalty and so on. So if your content's not accurate, they think you're trying to pull one over on them. If it's unclear, you know, you're going to lose people because they don't know what your product does and, and so on and so forth. So it's all around that brand loyalty and lots of things roll up into that. And then, you know, the fifth one is the operational efficiency, but that only works usually if all these other things are, one of these other things is broken. If all those things are working, they're not going to care about this one. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's a really clean value framework that I think is very useful for influencers, uh, content change makers. So I think that's a very good place to wrap up. I think the difficult thing that all of us are struggling with is that content is fundamentally more important than the investments in it. And we deal with that disparity all the time. And so I, you know, I, a lot of these conversations where we'd like to be talking about specifics of innovation within content operations practices end up coming into questions of sponsorship and funding. And this is true with clients. We end up uh, creating innovation, showing uh, progress, and then needing to make an incremental approach because there's a lack of a portfolio kind of thinking mentality in the enterprise. And so the things you're talking about are helping to really kind of show the way for some of the kinds of levers that create more portfolio thinking around content. Rahel, I think as we're moving forward in this era of content, we're in a period of transformation. Organizations are certainly transforming and quickly in the light of needing to do things in a distributed way. And knowledge is needing to move in that distributed way. What is your final plug in short form, uh, the executive pitch for content operations at this juncture in our history? Well, I say that content operations is operationalizing your content strategy. You need a content strategy. But overarching for that is you're making order out of chaos. 
I think that's what it is. You have content chaos and that's what you're doing is putting it into some sort of order. I get people all the time asking me, can we do it like company X? And what they don't know is that maybe the week before, the month before, someone from company X has called me from their content team and said, we are in such a mess. What do you, can you give me some tips? Because they're not coping, but from a, like a cool perspective, coolness perspective, they're considered, you know, hyper cool. So there's a a lot of difference between the hype and the reality. And I think that having that chaos and putting it into order is probably the, the, the biggest, the biggest thing you can hope to accomplish. Thank you so much. For those of you interested in following Rahel, she has a tremendously interesting set of insights uh, streaming on at Rahel AB on Twitter and is also available through uh, her books and writings. Just re- uh, Googling her name will, uh, will come up with a lot of material. Rahel, is there anywhere else that uh, folks need to know to look? I do have uh, some resources on my website. I launched it not long ago, so uh, it's kind of thin on the blog so far, but there are some resources there, including one, what is content operations that you can point people to. So that's contentseriously.co.uk. Wonderful. All right, Rahel, I'm really looking forward to our conversations about this in the in the months and years to come. And I'm glad we could share some of that with our amazing audience here at Towards a Smarter World. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, all. This episode of Towards a Smarter World is brought to you by A, the Content Intelligence Service. Learn more about intelligent customer experience powered by content strategy, engineering, and operations at simpleA.com. Thank you.